Good morning, everyone. Everyone's very quiet. Oh. <laughs> Thought we were running low on coffee or something. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as the tail end of our study of Gerhard's meditation on the desire for eternal life, I thought that we would look at a number of scriptures that inform us in regard to uh, the things that happen at death, the intermediate state, and what the scriptures have to say about the intermediate state, and of course the, the final state, while it won't be our focus, we'll certainly see the intermediate state flows into the final state. What do we mean by intermediate? Well, very briefly, um, when you die, where does your body go? End of the grave, into the ground, okay? And where does your soul go? That's the intermediate state. If you've been really, 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 really good and behaved yourself, you get to go to heaven. Is that right? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not, otherwise none of us will be there. I, I know you all very well. You're like me. We don't stand a chance without Jesus. No, if you have faith in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone apart from works. Now, if you've rejected Christ, what have you rejected? Well, your only hope. So your soul goes one of two places, and the scriptures kind of have, I like to stick as much as possible with the technical language, although there's nothing wrong with saying heaven and hell. That's great. But the scriptures describe the place where the soul goes upon death as paradise. That's with Jesus. We'll take a look at that. And then the place where the soul goes that has rejected Jesus, a place called prison. Right? Prison. So we'll talk some about the intermediate state. We're going to look at some scriptures and uh, maybe even treat some tangential topics. If we go this week, we go this week. If we go the next week, we go the next week. We aren't on any uh, time constraint here, so we're free to study the word of the Lord. What else is there to do these gray and latter days? What are we going to do? Look at the news? <laughs> Depressing. I don't think so. All right, so you're going to need a Bible today. We do have a number of Bibles up here off to the sides. Um, if, you, if you didn't bring one, or obviously if you, if you have a phone, you have a Bible now. So you might want to get that thing warmed up. Let's, let's begin um, just very generally. Um, as we talked very generally a moment ago about the intermediate state, about once you die, your body goes into the ground, your soul goes into paradise with Jesus, or into prison without Jesus. What's going on there? Those are divine waiting rooms, divinely appointed waiting rooms for the resurrection of, of all flesh and the final judgment. So the souls of those in paradise and the souls of those in prison will be rejoined in their bodies on the last day. Judgment will be rendered to those on Christ's right. He says, depart into everlasting life. Those are the sheep. To those on his left, he says, depart into everlasting darkness. Those are the goats. Now, 
what, what is the nature of death? That would be a good place to start. Not to spend too much time, but it might be a little bit more dynamic than you're used to thinking because we tend to think of death as just this singular action of my body being separated from my soul. But as we've seen, it's more than that. Especially if you attend our Thursday morning class, we've been looking at has American Christianity failed, or if you listen to those classes online, you'll know that for the past few weeks we've been talking about the state of spiritual death. Do you remember all the way back in the garden, God had told Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely well, did he? Spiritually, exactly. So there is a spiritual death. What does it mean? What does it mean to be spiritually dead, to be, as Paul later says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses? Where's the, where's the separation that's caused by spiritual death? Yeah, it's a separation from God. It's a tearing asunder of the unity and communion between God and man. Spiritual death then leads to temporal death, which is all the world conceives. And what is that? What is that a separation of? Obviously enough, the body and soul, the communion of the, of the wholeness of the human being torn asunder. Spiritual death leads to temporal death, which leads to eternal death. So you can see a threefold sense of death available to us in the scriptures, taught to us in the scriptures. It helps us to think more dynamically and more accurately about the nature of death. Even temporal death, we sort of have a misunderstanding about because we tend to think of temporal death as a singular action, right? When the, sem when the semi-truck finally hits you, <laughs> or the heart finally gives out, or whatever the case may be. But isn't it more accurate to see death sort of waiting as like the, the head and mouth of the octopus, as it were, but already reaching into your life are its tentacles. <laughs> already reaching into your life, death is claiming things from you. I have to pop these little things inside my eyes so I can see. Death has already reached forward and grabbed away from me part of my vision. Death has already reached forward and grabbed away from me well, part of my hair, part of my vitality, part of my energy and strength. I look at my kids. What do we all say when we see the kids? I wish I had their energy. Death has already come and taken that vitality, that life force away. As much as we like to blame schools and everything else, because we think if we can you know, blame the problem on something tangible and concrete like schools or government, then we can come up with a solution, which is a really kind of subtle idolatry. We can't. But death comes in and steals away our childhood, steals away our innocence, steals away our creativity. It's really, properly speaking, death that does these things. And so death in many and various ways reaches forward like, a, like some kind of nasty octopus already stripping away, pulling us ever closer and closer into it in which we are devoured. All right, well this helps us understand what Christ has come to do. 
already the very first proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 3. And God says it directly to the serpent. He talks about the seed of the woman, which is peculiar language. Does a woman have seed? No. So already there's something funky going on here. Already there's, there's an understanding that, that this, this being is going to be divine and human. And indeed the fact that the fact that Eve grasps this as soon as she has her firstborn Cain, the literal translation from the Hebrew is, I have received a man, the Lord. She thinks she has the Messiah. Wouldn't that be nice? Unfortunately, he turns into kind of an anti-Messiah, doesn't he? Instead of saving his brother, he murders his brother. Okay, but this promise that God makes to the serpent in earshot of Adam and Eve proclaims that this Christ will crush the serpent's head. Now, in the process, his heel is going to be bruised, and so his victory is going to come through what? Great suffering. We already know that. See, even in Genesis, we can already see the incarnation. Okay? We can see the suffering by which our salvation will be accomplished. And if you have a bruised heel, you can rise from that, can't you? So we see the resurrection. If you have a crushed head, can you, can you rise from that? No. And so we see already proclaimed the full defeat of Satan. Now the fact that Christ has come to crush Satan's head. Well, what has Satan done heretofore? First thing he did was lead Adam and Eve into sin. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there's this threefold death. Instant spiritual death. They had to be made alive. They had to be quickened by this preaching of the gospel so that they would have faith in God and faith that God would indeed send a Savior. So God immediately spiritually raises them. Now they've got to wait, now their bodies are going to die and they've got to wait for the resurrection of their bodies. But if Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil, to crush his head, then Christ has come to take away sin. And if he takes away sin, he's come to take away death. Okay, what threefold aspect of death? Spiritual death, temporal death, and eternal death. Christ comes and takes away spiritual death, and that's immediate. That's wherever the, the gospel is proclaimed, and people are awakened by the Holy Spirit into new faith, newness of life. A spiritual resurrection has occurred. Think of Ezekiel. Remember the valley of dry bones? They all rise up in various stages and sinews are wrapped around. What causes them to rise? What causes the sinews? What causes the breath? Do you remember? Speaking. Preaching. Speaking. Exactly right. So God, what is God showing us in that vision? He's showing us that the spiritual resurrection of Israel happens through speaking. Or as St. Paul says very plainly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so through that speaking, we are made alive together with Christ. All right? So spiritual death is undone by Christ. Temporal death is undone by Christ. How do we know this? He's risen. Easter. 
He's risen in his body, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn implies what? There are others. There are other sons to be born from the dead, and that is us. In fact, this is a, this is a foretaste of that glory which is to come. We won't be known as, as those poor, miserable sinners who died and became worm's meat and, and then were just saved by the skin of our teeth to be second-class citizens in heaven for eternity. No. No. We are those who in Christ have conquered death. We are those who are born from the very grave itself, which is pretty savage if you think about it. Pretty awesome. Like, what, what greater darkness could you conquer and be born from and be your, so that the essence and ground of your being is to be an immortal one in Christ Jesus, one who has conquered death never to die again? Incredible. So this is our glory and honor. God turns our shame into our glory, conquers temporal death for us, the death of our body, that rendering asunder. So again, if we say the essence of spiritual death is separation between us and God, Christ comes and heals that, we see ourselves united to God once more. When temporal death comes, we're separated body and soul. Christ, by his resurrection, shows that that too will be undone. So we're waiting for our bodies to catch up. (laughs) We are made alive with God spiritually, and we're waiting for our bodies to catch up. It's where this outward man is perishing day by day, and you can see those tentacles of death reaching forward and stripping things away from us. But the inward man, untouched, unharmed, in fact, growing each day. And that growth is profound. It's not one-dimensional. It doesn't mean that as you're laying on your deathbed, you know, you're reciting scripture in your head or something like this necessarily. What is that? That, that growth can be very paradoxical in the, in the sense that that growth can be simply trust. You know who God is. You entrust yourself to him fully. As this life goes on, less and less do we trust ourselves. We trust in him. We trust in him even more than ourselves. This, by the way, alleviates about every theological problem you can possibly imagine. Is when you just say, I don't know, I don't need to know, and who am I to judge God? Kind of that beautiful phrase. In my mind, it never really made sense. Let God be God. It always struck me as kind of idiotic. But when you think about it in these terms, it's absolutely true and profoundly true. Simply trust him more than you trust yourself. That's what all of life really is teaching us. All right, so we said that Christ is going to come to crush the serpent's head, to undo sin. He does this through his atoning death on the cross, to undo death. And we've seen then this threefold, spiritual, uh, this threefold aspect of death. First the spiritual, he undoes that by converting us. Then the temporal, he undoes that by raising us. Then the eternal, he takes away the eternal death as well. So when we die... You know, this is such a beautiful thing. What does Christ say in John? He puts, this is such a Jesus thing to do. This is quintessential Jesus. He puts together two statements that can't possibly make sense. Love it. Though you die, yet shall you live. Okay, all right, straightforward. If you get the resurrection, straightforward. Next line. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. die. (laughs) Which is it? The answer is yes. 
They're both absolutely true. So whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What is that talking about? If you're going to die and then you're going to live, well, that talks about the resurrection. That's the end of temporal death. But the greater Jesus saves for last. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And this is the sense in which eternal death is taken away. All the teeth and fangs of death have been taken away. The burden has become light. Death has become the very gateway to paradise. We can be very, very concrete about this. We can stand at the side of the grave and say this has become the gate to paradise. This is not separation from God. This is joining with God in the profoundest sense. Death has been so stripped of its teeth that it's no longer even death. In fact, it would be more accurate to call it a birth. <laughs> Talk about gutting death. So Jesus, so Jesus then conquers spiritual death, temporal death, and eternal death. And we're waiting for the fullness of all of this to come to be, but we know it is. Make sense so far in terms of uh, frame? Okay. So until he raises us in our flesh, then we suffer from temporal death, that is the separation of body and soul, which is unnatural. You know, what, is the, what does America think like today? Like, oh, as soon as you're free from the body... You can float around. You're finally free from the confines of the flesh, the confines of the physical world. You can float around and do whatever you want. Is that Christianity? No. That's Gnosticism. It's an ancient heresy. It's written by Satan. I, uh, I preached a, a sermon here. It was too long ago to incriminate anyone, so don't worry about that. I can't even remember who it was. But I preached a funeral sermon here at Faith as, as a pretty young pastor. And um, as is our way, we really emphasize baptism and specifically that Romans 6 theology where if we're baptized with Christ, we're buried with Him and raised with Him. And there's a sense in which we're already buried and already raised, walking in newness of life. There's another sense in which at our death, we are truly buried and buried with him in our bodies, awaiting the last day when in our bodies we will literally and truly be raised with him. So I preached a sermon about the, the body was there, and I just said, this body will be glorified. This body will be raised from the dead. As certain as Jesus is raised in his body, this body will be raised. And I said to those who are mourning, you will be able to see with your eyes your loved one, hold with your hands your loved one, embrace, kiss, fellowship with for all eternity. This is the resurrection of the body. As soon as the service was over, I had a crowd of Christians around me. The vicar knows, because I've told some war stories, funeral sermons, in my estimation, are some of the most tenuous to preach. I have gotten full-on accosted before because of funeral sermons. Um, this one was a little more pleasant, but still so odd. A group of Christians surrounded me, and they said, we're not Lutheran, but we're Christians. We've spent our whole lives in a Christian church. Is this really Christianity? The resurrection of the body, is that right? Yeah, yeah. See what happens when you lose the creeds, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you lose the creeds and you lose the the weekly, uh, every week confession of the of the resurrection of the body. 
So you lose that part of your theology and you drift into a Christian Gnosticism. Your whole worldview gets skewed by this. So the resurrection of the body, the wholeness of the human being, dwelling with God, spiritual resurrection, bodily resurrection, eternal resurrection, dwelling with God, the beatific vision. And then since we are in our bodies raised from the dead, then these are, these are material. The scriptures, they're such a higher kind of material and such a higher kind of existence than we experience right now that the scriptures even say spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean like not physical, not material. That's not what's meant. It's heightened, elevated beyond these mere fleshly bodies. Um, immortal in our bodies. You know, how easy is it to take life away from these bodies? A well-placed bullet? This, this always cracks me up. That's like, well, I don't know if it cracks me up. It's kind of a morbid thought. But guess how easy it is to take life away from this body? That's it. Like two well-placed fingers. <laughs> I mean, I exaggerate, but you get the point. We're not nearly as robust as we think we are. But now imagine being in a body immortal. Imagine being in a body deathless, where air, frankly, isn't a necessity, nor is food or drink or anything else. You live. That's a spiritual body. That's this body elevated. Okay? So that's what, we, that's what we wait for, this spiritual body and this wholeness then in which we can participate with God in complete and perfect union with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, which likewise are going to be an elevation of what is. In the same way our bodies are destroyed in the earth and then raised the same and yet new, this earth, the heavens and the earth, are destroyed and yet made new. They all endure their own kind of resurrection. We can glimpse this very, in a very dynamic sort of way. When you think of the incarnation of Jesus, we often think about this. Here's where, I mean, maybe the only time modern science helps us. I jest, I jest. Okay, but, um, but think about Jesus. Think about Jesus being incarnate. And we often think of this in a very Sunday school kind of like overly simple cartoon way, like, okay, he takes on this body. But what do we know about our bodies? Our cells are constantly dying and sloughing off and being regrown. And where are we getting the energy to regrow our cells? From the sustenance of the earth. In fact, God makes man of the Earth. That's what Adam means. Dirtbag. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> that's what it means to be a man, to be of the earth. There's a profound sense in which we are of the earth and connected to the earth through our bodies. Now, when Jesus becomes incarnate, think of what that means. He's not only incarnate in this pristine human body completely detached from the rest of creation. Oh, what would that be? That would be an alien, that would be a kind, yeah, that would be a kind of Gnostic incarnation. What kind of incarnation does he have? He shares our flesh and the substance of this earth and he eats fish and bread and he's at one with the earth the way we are at one with the earth. And so what does this mean? The resurrection of our bodies cannot help but mean the resurrection of the earth, the transformation of our bodies into a spiritual elevation, 
the transformation of the earth into a spiritual uh, elevation such that such that the new heavens and the new earth are a physical place and yet a place really far greater than we can imagine. Now that's the fullness of the inheritance, why we need resurrected bodies to inherit a physical space and all the joys thereof. Okay, hopefully that helps to sort of give us a big picture of all these things. Before we move on to a text, um, let's, let's pause and see if you have any thoughts, anything to add, any questions or clarifications. I'd be happy to make those if I've said something confusing. There's a hand, please. Yeah, one of my thoughts, well, a couple of them. Um, one is, uh, you know, we're promised a new heaven and a new earth. Um, we would need a new earth because there's not enough room on this earth for hopefully all the people that are going to be saved. I agree. What. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully <laughs> this will be like Eden and we'll need to populate. Yeah, hopefully there'll be so many. Right. Yeah, rather than, as some sects say, yeah, rather know, than 144,000 or whatever. Yeah, yeah right. Um, the other thought that I've been having for uh, about a year or so, um, is when I listen to um, the news um, on TV or the radio or whatever, and and some firefighter or lifeguard or doctor saves somebody's life, to me, I would like to do a global replace on that phrase to um, postpone their death rather than <laughs> save their life. Because, you know, the, the, the only person that can save your life is the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Yeah, well said. I propose we say interfered with. <laughs> interfered with. Yeah, temp temporarily delayed. I like that. I like that. Well, there's a truth of that in, in all the things that Jesus does in his, mirac in his miracles, including the resurrection of the dead. I mean, think about it. All, and unless those people are like running around Highlander style or, you know, then, you know, Lazarus is still existing and like hiding out in a bunker in Montana or something. No, I mean, all, then all these people who, who experienced healing in Jesus' ministry ended up dying. The people that Jesus rose from the dead, even that was kind of a temporary post you can see now why Jesus is kind of, I mean, honestly, and it strikes us as so odd, cold on his miracles. He does them. He wants to do them. But he's far more interested in what they teach than in the miracles themselves. And if you had to pit the two against each other, his ministry of miracle working or his ministry of teaching, which does our Lord think is greater? His ministry of teaching. In fact, he says, this is why I've come. There's, a, there's a, a very acute example of this where he's been healing people all day and all night and he, takes, he finally is exhausted and he takes off and the disciples are like, hey, come back. There's a lot more people. And he's like, we're moving on. I came to teach. Remember all the times in the, in the scriptures where Jesus tells people that he healed, don't tell anyone. And we all just think, Oh, great reverse psychology, Jesus, because they all go and tell everyone. No, he actually means this. He actually means it because he doesn't want to be known as Miracle Max. He's come not to grant temporal blessing only, but eternal blessing. And the temporal blessings are a foretaste of that feast which is to come, nothing more. And if they're perceived as more, Jesus immediately doesn't like it, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Because he's come for resurrection and for new creation on a 
cosmic scale. So that then helps shed light on why Jesus tells people all the time to stop talking about his Go and tell no one. Why does he tell the demons to tell no one? Because he doesn't like them. <laughs> That's it. I mean, really, he does, you're not going to speak for me. You're probably going to deceive people and mislead people. And even if you don't, you've got no business. You've got no worthiness. I've got nothing to do with you. Not even if you go preach me. Zip. Zilch. None of it. I don't need any of it. Thank you. Yeah, so that explains two mysteries of the scriptures then, why Jesus is always telling people to be quiet. It's because he's come to teach, not do miracles as such. Yes, please. Back to your sermon. Um, Wait, today or? No, 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 no. The, okay. the one when <laughs> your early sermon. Didn't know how defensive I needed to get. Yeah. Uh, evangelicals love the Old Testament. In, didn't Job say with my eyes or with these eyes I shall see the Lord or something to that effect? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get there actually because that, that demonstrates the point for us, the continuity of identity. It's not like, it's not like Job says um, on, on the last day he's raised in his body and he sees the Lord and he's like, who are you? No, no, I will see the Lord with my eyes. Um, even though my flesh is thus destroyed, consumed by worms, yet in my flesh I shall stand before him, and with my eyes I shall see him. So there's, not only does that show the resurrection of the body taught in the Old Testament, ignore the history channel that tries to tell you that, it was a, that the resurrection is an invention of the New Testament. It's not. The Old Testament is full of allusions to it. Um, and in fact, just outright statements supporting it. The resurrection of the body, but then the continuity of the person. I myself, I who am right here as Job penning these words to you, I will see God in my flesh. So, continuity. There's this weird, again, it's, this is a Gnostic idea that's invaded Christianity, that you somehow, as you depart through death into heaven, you get a lobotomy. Ah, <laughs> oh, who am I? Who's everyone else? Who's God? What is this? I don't know where this idea comes from except Satan. Because the scriptures put it very, very clearly, very, very plainly. And C.S. Lewis is great on this point, by the way. It's not that you become less yourself. It's that you become more yourself than ever before. It's not that you're going to know people less. You're going to know them better. It's not that you're going to be ignorant of people you did know. You're going to now know people you didn't. <laughs> Everything expands. And part of that is the true anthropology of man. We are much more interconnected than sin and fallenness would have us believe. Right, more on that later, but thank you for bringing that up. Twofold question regarding uh, waiting rooms. Um, the uh, paradise, uh, we know that John saw the martyrs under the altar, and they, he, if he saw them, they must have had bodies. They weren't just souls, so that, that's part one. If you could comment on that, and then uh, in hell uh, slash uh, prison, uh, we confess that uh, Jesus descended into hell, and I think we we confess that he preached to those in in that prison. Uh, so they must have ears to hear. And uh, so, if you could just comment on the what Scripture tells us the waiting rooms are like. Hmm. Yeah. Good questions. Good questions. Thank you for that. 
Okay, so um, what does a soul look like? According to, according to the Bible, it looks like your body. How do we know that they're not resurrected um, in Revelation 6, the martyrs under the throne? How do we know they're not yet in their bodies? They're crying out, how long until vindication comes? Well, vindication comes at the final judgment. When all evil is driven out of the... Remember how all evil is driven out of the sphere of heaven? Jesus ascends. Michael and his angels push it down. Woe to the earth, for he is now here and his time is short. When Jesus returns, what's he doing? coming to our realm and kicking him out. Remember how he used angels to kick him out? Who is he going to use to kick him out of here? The saints. Indeed, that's already what he's doing in a sense. We're the, we're the front guard, as it were. That's why we're wearing our full armor of Christ, not to sit around on the sofa uncomfortable. But we are engaging in spiritual warfare, driving out the principalities and powers of darkness already. Right? Okay, what was the question? <laughs> All right, so, so in, in heaven, um, we know that they're not in their resurrected bodies, yet they have bodies. Into their hands is placed a palm branch, upon them is placed a white garment. Um, this is just a very, like, what does a soul look like? It looks like your body. It's part of the reason why we'll recognize each other. Now, which body? Well, nobody knows. I mean, like the body of you when you were six months or, um, you know, 30 years old or 60. Well, what's going on there? This whole growth and development of the human being leaves behind, and so does all the decay that's natural to a fallen state. All of this, so the cl closest answer is, you will be you in your maturity. You'll be the final state of you. That's what you'll be like in your body. Um, you're not going to have any decay, but you're not going to have any lack due to lack of growth or development. In other words, you'll be you. I don't know, we'd say something probably like, you're prime, but even that's misleading. You'll be you, not subject to a fallen world. And in fact, transitioned, graduated as it were, from a good creature of God into the telos, the end or perfect state conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay, so they don't have, they don't have bodies in heaven, but expect to see what look like bodies because the soul looks like a body. Um, I, you know, some, some of the church fathers point and say, like, oh, is this possible? Well, an angel doesn't have a body, and yet they, con they frequently appear in the scriptures as having a body. Remember those by the tomb? They appear as young men. Lots of examples in the scriptures of angels who don't have bodies appearing as though they do have bodies. So if an incorporeal angel can have the appearance of a body, so can an incorporeal soul. Make sense? So the argument goes. All right, that was the first part of the question, right? And then the second was, um, in 1 Peter 3, we talk about uh, Jesus descending into prison in order to proclaim. What's going on there? Well, here, um, here what we have is, if you look at the grammar in 1 Peter 3 very closely, Jesus is made alive. He who is put to death is made alive in the Spirit, or made alive by the Spirit. In other words, resurrected. Then he descends into hell. What would happen if he descended into hell non-resurrected? He's going to go in there and say, I've conquered death, and hell's going to snicker. Where's your body? 
the, that's exactly Peter's point, is that he's raised in his body, descends into hell in order to triumph over death. Who brought death? Satan and all the fallen ones, all the evil ones. So he goes and proclaims his victory to them. Much more than that is speculative, and we aren't bound to it. The Lutheran confessions are very, very wise in the article on the descent into hell to just simply leaving it simple. We know that he went down in his body. We know that he did not suffer. We know that he proclaimed his victory there. Sad assessed. Anything more than that is probably speculation. Okay, so was he preaching them to convert them or give them a second chance? Nothing in the scriptures indicates that. In fact, that would cause all kinds of problems, right? Theological problems. So no, he goes down and proclaims his victory over those who thought they had the victory. It's a triumphal um, shaking of the powers of hell. The work of Satan has so thoroughly been undone that there's no reason for anyone to ever go to hell again. Sin has been removed. Death has been removed. All will be undone. So um, that hopefully gives you a sense for that episode. Yes, please. It, it sounds to me like what you're talking about in all these different uh, scenarios is a, a battle against dualism. Um, maybe you could comment on that. But uh, we, we're in a culture that celebrates life when people die, which mm. I've always thought is uh, odd. Yeah, uh, and I wouldn't do that for my parents and I, my uh, old church, which I was raised in, um, very pietistic, um, down in San Diego. Uh, the pastor actually did an apologetic for the way we were doing our service versus the way they usually do their service. Just to, I think I was there for that. I think you were. I remember that. Um, so you know, we're we're fighting against the current yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, uh, that, that's just something we have to stay aware of <clears throat> on all these different doctrinal and kind of um, theological levels, mm -hmm. that we represent something that is definitely countercultural. Yes, and, um, and much ink has been spilled. I can think of, uh, well, if I had a little bit of time, I could probably think of at least two or three books that address this. And they do so generally by ana analyzing the spirituality of Americans within this frame of Gnosticism. Again, Gnosticism, like its, it's sort of anthropology, is that spirit is good, body is bad. You can go two ways with that. Therefore, the body must be shunned, okay? kind of an ascetic move. Or the body, sinful though it is, should just be embraced. <laughs> Of an antinomian lawless move of like, and in fact, there were even Christians. There were even Christians who who would go like, "Well, my body's you know by nature just fornicates, so have at it, body." And then, <laughs> and then they'd be like, "But that's not me." <laughs> oh, terrible, terrible theology. So yeah, this this idea of duality, body and material bad, spiritual um, and uh, immaterial good. And you can see how that weaves itself into almost all aspects of American life. Look at the, look at the gender stuff that's going on. Um, my body, the material, doesn't represent this incorporeal part of me, you see. It's a Gnostic idea that there's this separation. 
um, feminism is largely based upon this Gnostic idea that there are just there are just immaterial souls, and one happens to be deposited into a female body, and one happens to be deposited into a male body, and so then any any qualities or differences between the two need to be corrected. Uh, you see, from premise to conclusion, it's all contra scripture, contra truth. Um, and there are other manifestations, but we could do a whole class on the Gnostic ideas in America. They really do show themselves, as I illustrated earlier, in, in terms of people's expectations of funerals. And the celebration of life thing is, just generally speaking, um, wrong-headed on a number of different levels. And it's just difficult to know which, which level or levels, plural, are operant in a given person who's wanting to celebrate the life. Um, you know, part of this is um, eulogizing also. Okay, these are very sensitive things. If you've celebrated life, like, relax, I'm not condemning you. If you've eulogized, relax, I'm not condemning you, okay? Please. Uh, but but like, let's do a little deep dive hardcore analysis here for just a minute. How does a eulogy go? A person has died, which is, um, let's see. Is death in and of itself, despite what the mortician can do, is it a beautiful thing? No. If the creator creates a brand new little baby and raises you up the way you are, what is death? What is the creator saying in death? Nope. Undone. Curse. Judgment. Everybody knows this in their heart of hearts. Every, every single person knows this. Every single person knows that death is bad. Every single person knows that death is ugly. So what, is a, what does a eulogy do? The creator has done this thing. And a eulogy is all about what? How good the person was. What has God just said? Worthy of death. What does the person, what, what does a humanity immediately do? Worthy of life. Now you see what's really going on spiritually there. The Lutheran reformers called this the opinio legis, the desire to justify oneself. It meets its most concrete form in this, and it, I, I don't mean to make light of tragedy, but on the news every so often, increasingly these days it seems, you've got the death of some young person, and they were, they were killed while committing some crime some obvious manifest rebellion, violence, wickedness of some sort. And what do the bawling family members say? My son was such a good boy. You know, the narrator, ma'am, he was in a gang for the past decade. He never did anything to anyone. Ma'am, he physically assaulted multiple people. He has a prison rap sheet. You know, you see, what is this innate sense of justification, justifying ourselves, and then in this case, justifying the person who has died. That's the opinio legis writ large, and it is frankly an act of theological warfare against God. God has said no. The pr everybody else says, why? This is so unjust. They were a good person. You see what's going on? Just why? Don't have eulogies for me at my funeral. If God gives me the strength like he gave Samson the strength, I will rise up just enough to like knock down the candles, yell at everyone, and then go back. <laughs> uh, 
So that's a deep dive analysis. Again, more superficially, do we have this in our hearts and our minds as we're doing it? No, so relax. But let's, if we're going to deep dive analysis, let's deep dive analysis. So, um, so then what is a celebration of life? It's really just the same manifestation. Um, it's just a different way of thinking about that. It often tries to be Christianized. But if it tries to be Christianized, like one of the tells is, well, how long have, how long have Christian people been, been doing celebrations of life? Any guesses? Not. <laughs> right? <laughs> a few decades. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, when Luther died, there was not a celebration of life. Um, when St. Paul died, there was not a celebration of life. Any people in between? What, so what is proclaimed? Whereas the, cre whereas the Creator has said to this person, no. What then is the proclamation? The Christian proclamation. In Christ, God is reversing this no to a yes. In Christ, this person shall rise. Wait and see. Our hope is in the promises of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This person was baptized into his death and into his resurrection. This person will rise. Indeed, we can even go so far as to say on account of faith that God has taken this person from this veil of sorrow into his safekeeping and on the last day will return them in their body to join with us in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a beautiful Christological aspect of death. Again, when I die, don't anybody, well, I guess some of you will celebrate that I'm dead. <laughs> don't, don't any of you celebrate my life. Okay, celebrate the life of Christ because I am dead. My life is hidden in him. The appropriate way to celebrate any saint's life is to celebrate Christ for he is our life. Okay, and then to give this answer. So here's the Christological impact of our death. Do you remember when it is said that Jesus will draw all men to himself? Not at his resurrection, interestingly. When? When he is lifted up, which is Johannine language for when he is crucified. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. As the crucified one, I will draw all men to myself. Now, some, like the thief on the, next to him on the cross, will ridicule him until his dying breath cursing and mocking him. And some, like the other thief, will turn to him in repentance and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me, he says, in paradise. But that's a microcosm. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We are all under the death sentence. We are all hanging there with him. And you fall into one camp or the other. You're mocking him until your dying breath. Or like that, like that converted thief on the cross. You are mocking him right up until his action and words convert you and you pray to him for mercy. That's it. The whole of humanity is cut into those two camps. Okay, what's the microcosm of this? His life has become our life. Baptized into Christ, we have become Christ. This is such a beautiful thing. Conformed into his, his image, the image of the crucified one. When he dies, when he is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. When we die, guess who we draw? All our people. We draw them in 
To ourselves? To who? Christ. And that's the point of a funeral. That's the point of the entire thing. That our final act in this life is a Christological act. And we can't do anything about it. It just happens. We as Christians die and we draw all our men in, but not to ourselves, to, the, to one who will stand there and proclaim Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, who will proclaim the resurrection of the body. That's the point. So now when, when you've died... And, and there's a gathering for you, but you haven't specified that you want it at Faith Lutheran Church or with your pastor. And so your family draws it away to some other venue with some other pastor or spokesman. What does he tell them? This is where I die a thousand deaths and my heart breaks probably more than anywhere else in my ministry because I watch, I go, I watch, and I would be 100% fine with it if that gentleman or female, whoever it is, would preach Jesus, would preach the only true antidote to death there is. So we rob ourselves of the Christological event. More properly speaking, we rob those whom we love of the Christological event, lest we plan our funerals to take place in such a way that you know Christ will be preached and that they too will have opportunity to be drawn to him themselves. Yes, please. I think um, it shouldn't surprise us when some churches, as you said, don't uh, profess the creed, don't confess their sins, don't, as we've talked on Thursday, don't have crosses, won't look at, won't look at sin, and then they're faced with death. They can't handle it. I mean, so they try to cover it up with platitudes. He was a good old guy, and he did this, and he's going to be swimming in heaven and at the beach, and playing golf and whatever. I mean, how do you do that? And so I, I think it just is a way for them to placate themselves. And, and not in a mean way. They don't know what to do. They can't handle right, it. Right. In the absence of Christ, what do you have? You have nothing. Just the kind of the nonsense that comes to you. And that's a lot of what we've seen on the increase in our culture. The idea to try to baptize this and make it work for Christians is a bad idea. We really ought to reject it wholesale and get down to the root of what we have. That in, if death is God's no, his yes is yes in Christ Jesus. And to make that the center and proclamation. And we had years ago a couple that left the church because they felt they should go the evangelical way. And their daughter died. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. And nobody at that church would talk to them about death. They had to come back here, thankfully, and they felt comforted right. with the Word of God right. and apologized. We said, no apology necessary. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a big, you know, we understand. Yeah, the real, the real sort of test of one's theology is, does your theology work when a person's on their deathbed and not going to recover? Does your theology still work after they've died? 
This is a great weakness of American Christianity. And you can see it absolutely fall apart when faced with death um, in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing that remains but platitudes. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes, please. I just had one quick, I, you, your course cause reflection on personal experiences and stuff. And I may cry at this because you make me think of my mother. Mm. And I had, she was, you said weeks ago how the real test of how strong their Christianity is sometimes is on their deathbed. Mm -hmm. that, they, that you can really, and I'm sure that gives you strength and seeing how it's done so well in how to minister to those who are struggling with that whole idea. You know, you can, but a very odd thing had happened. Uh, the day after my mom had passed, a Muslim doctor had called me and he asked me why was she so peaceful? Mm. Why was she so, I, we didn't expect her to go that quickly. And yet she was so strong and so peaceful about the whole thing. It was the most beautiful death I, this Muslim doctor told me he'd almost ever seen. And it gave me the opportunity to share her faith, her Christian faith. Ah, wonderful. And it was completely out of the blue, totally by surprise. I mean, he saw it, I guess, as he took care of her at a terminal cancer, you know, that, that was going to only lead to death. And um, I was there, he was nowhere around when she took her last breath. So, mm -hmm. but somehow that impression of how she conducted her last days on this earth struck him. So, so you never know, my mother will, you know, she pro somehow she will know about that. Uh -huh. But this was actually after she died. A beautiful reflection, a beautiful Thank reflection. And, and the glory of God, that the final things we do in this life, the way we die, the way our, our funeral is structured could in fact be our, our final good works and maybe even some of our best. The Lord be with you. Nice.